everybody, and welcome to another episode of Sisters in Color. My name is Christine Mudavanu. I'm your host on this podcast where we bring you amazing women of color from around the globe who come on here to inspire us and tell us a bit about who they are and how they got to be where they uh, where they are today. Today, I'm really excited because I have a fellow kindred spirit from our country of Zimbabwe. Her name is Agnes. She is into um, the cosmetics industry and she's going to really talk to us about, you know, her career and she's going to talk to us about, about that space and really tell us about how to take better care of ourselves and of our skin. Hello, Agnes. Welcome to Sisters in Color. Oh, thank you very much. I'm so honored to be on the podcast today. Well, tell us a little bit about yourself. Who is Agnes? Um, so uh, my name is Agnes. I uh, grew up in a very small town in Zimbabwe. So most people actually, when I tell them where I grew up, they do not know um, where it is. I grew up in a small town called Shirungwi. Yes, Makorokoza. Yes, uh, I know where that is. <laughs> Um, and, um, yeah, so actually I was born in Mashingo and my parents uh, moved to Shirugi because of their jobs. And, um, I basically went through school and everything while living in Shirugi, even though I went to boarding school for the better years of my education. Um, I am a registered nurse now and I work in the cosmetic industry. Yeah. So tell us a bit about your early life in Zimbabwe. What are some of your early fond memories that you can share with us? Ah. You know, it's so funny because um, sometimes we have those conversations with my brothers and talk about, like, um, I remind them how they have it easy because two of my brothers actually um, mainly grew up here in Australia. Um, I remember, you know, like, you know, we, we, we are afraid of letting our children out and about half the time because of fear of the unknown. And we have so many predators in the world. But I remember walking to school and I was walking about a good 5k from home when I was in primary school from the age of uh, five till I was in grade seven and I went to Seleque Primary School and it was um, one of the best schools in town you know it was the group A school when I was growing up so um, it was a really really good thing and then I went when uh, time for me to go to secondary school came I went to a school called Zimuto it's in Mashingo um, Kwamneri and um I, I remember I used to hate it because um, I felt like my parents did not love me. They just shipped me off to this boarding school. But then when I look back now as an adult, I'm grateful for that because I learned a lot of my um, skills, resilience from being in boarding school because you're put into boarding school where you only have your peers, children of the same age and a little bit older, if not younger. And then you only have teachers to be looking after you. So then it's like, you've got no mom, you've got no dad, you've got to learn to survive. It was like survival of the fittest. And whether you liked it or not, you had to survive every term when you were at school. You you, you know how it was. And oh, I was a boarder. I, I definitely know how it was. <laughs> um. But um, like when I look back, I I create. I grew up to. There was a lot of bonds that were created. Mm -hmm. I actually am still. Up, you know, thank God for technology. WhatsApp groups, right? I have a mm -hmm. WhatsApp group for you know class of two thousand and two. Like the, some of the guys that I graduated from school with, and mm -hmm. we still hang out and chat. And occasionally, when I go back to Zimbabwe, it's like everyone goes and hey guys, I'm in Zim. Who's around? Who wants to catch up? Mm -hmm. Those are the relationships you create when you go there. Um, 
so I was a bit of a rebel when I was at school. I used to pick fights a lot, whether it was boys or girls. I very strong minded. Um, you know, I try I try not to use the word stubborn. I'm trying not to use that word even with my children because um I feel like it's strong mind. I used to fight with a lot of people. If I didn't believe in what they were doing, whether they were bullying or whatever, I would pick a fight with them. So um when it came to me doing my high school, the I remember the deputy headmaster told my father that they were not going to take me back at Zimoto for form five and six. And my dad came home furious. What did you do? And I was like, dad, I just, you know, I was just a kid. I just picked a few fights here and then that's how it was. Mm -hmm. um, so I ended up doing my high school at Tongogara High School, which is in Shirugui. Mm -hmm. um, I was really, really good. I enjoyed it there. I was an athlete, so I used to sprint. And I remember finishing at Zimoto and going to Tongogara and this you know, you know, when you start lower six, everyone's already started the school term, right? And they had yeah. selected the school, um, school team for athletics. And then the sports master had been told by my dad that I was an athlete. And I got there and um, it's like, oh, you lower sixes on, on your mark, set, go. And I, you know, dragged my feet and pretended I couldn't run and got to the end. And he's like, Agnes, I know you can run. Your dad told me you can run. You're going to run again. So I made the whole team run that many times to such an extent that I think people hated me because they're like, girl, you can run. Why are you doing this? So I started off like, you know, on a bed, um, like on a bed spot with a lot of my peers then. And but in the end, I actually, I remember rocking up because when um when we were lower six, Tongo Gara had only just started allowing long hair at school for upper sixes. So I remember rocking up at school with a ponytail and these upper sixes are like, who the hell do you think you are coming here with a ponytail? You should have your hair plated. Mm -hmm. And this girl um, that I was, um, who I got to school the same day, she's like, oh, hang on, I'll do some cornrows for you. And she did that zigzag cornrow. You remember the zigzag? Uh, oh, yes. And boy, did I get in trouble for that. It was like, I, I feel like everywhere I've gone, I've always been like a rebel. I go against the odds. I'm always pushing boundaries, right? Yeah. Got in trouble by the senior head, uh, senior mistress at school. She's like, what do you think you are? It's like, but I mean, my hair is plated. It's neat. Mm -hmm. What difference does it what make whether it's straight or zigzag, you know? Yeah. Um, and even like the the head boy did not like me. That I was constantly in trouble. And I'm a talker, as you can tell. Like I do not mm -hmm. shut up. I I swear to God, I think I even like someone said to me, I talk in my sleep as well. So <laughs> don't worry, I'm in that I'm in that same boat. So Agnes, in those early years, what was inspiring you to? I know Zimbabwe is a highly competitive environment in terms of you know when people ask me, you know, did you how did you end up here? I always you know, to me, it's not even a, a necessarily the right question because in Zimbabwe, we grew up in an environment where learning was was not optional. Like it was what we all did. We all did. My and, mom, like my mother always said to me, your first husband is your career. So yeah. that's how we are taught. Like it's embedded in your brain. It doesn't matter how good you are at sports. It doesn't no. matter how brilliant you are, whatever. Education comes first. <laughs> yeah, I used to tell people that, um, you know, there are families that I know where the school fees got paid before the rent got paid. This is how important education really is. And when you look around the world, and I know um, people people always say to me, I said, look, you know, when you look at a country, there's a totality of history, right? It, it's not all bad. You know, one of the, Robert Mugabe was a teacher. And I'm not yeah. advocating, you know, in any way for Zanupia, please do not 
troll me around that. I'm talking about a very specific concept around education. He yeah. was a teacher. That was his background. Yeah. And so he brought that philosophy of learning into all of us. Yeah. So you can't, the education system that you and I grew up with is very, very different to what I've experienced for my kid here. And I think sometimes I struggle to, for people to understand that because they'll say, well, you're articulate. What did you learn? I'm like, no, I'm not articulate because of this education system. I'm articulate because of the education system I was brought I was brought up in. So tell us a bit about what inspired you to, to in like in high school, we all start thinking about what is it, what it is that we want. What were some of the early things that were going through your head about what career path you wanted to be? Yeah. So growing up, I actually wanted to be a lawyer because I was mm -hmm. good at talking. I was always good at talking myself out of trouble. Sometimes I would talk myself into trouble. Um, <laughs> I thought, love it. <laughs> yeah, law was my thing. I was going to mm -hmm. be a lawyer. But then you know how we most of us grow up Christian or mm -hmm. like, you know, I grew up Catholic. So, I mean, we, we at the end of the day, it's the same God, right? We still have the same beliefs. Mm -hmm. And then I started thinking, you know, when you're young and you've got this young man, you're like, but if I'm a lawyer, I'm going to be probably defending criminals. That means I won't go to heaven because I wanted to go to heaven. So <laughs> Oh, I didn't that's realize how, that. Oh, my that's gosh. How you I thought. Me. Oh, yeah. So that sort of, um, like, it actually took away that idea of I wanted to be a lawyer. And then I remember my dad. My dad came home one day and he was like, I see you being a journalist. And I was like, nah, I can't be a journalist because you're a talker. You're so good at talking. Journalism is all about talking. So he had already picked that career up for me. He's like, oh, you're going to be a journalist. I was like, I don't know. And because in my head, it was either if I couldn't be a lawyer, then maybe I would go into a medical field. No um, and then I always thought, oh, but I'm, you know, like when you sort of underestimate your own strengths. And I used to think, yeah, hey, I'm not smart enough to be a doctor. And I remember my family used to say, you, you're smart enough to be whatever you want as long as you put your mind to it. Mm. Um, then, funny thing is, I loved reading. I grew up reading a lot and I loved writing. I used to write, you know, I used to write so many um, mm -hmm. short stories. And uh, I, I, I'm sad because when I came to Australia, I couldn't bring all those counter books I used to write my short stories in, you know. I remember those bl black counter books had so many short stories in them. So then I thought maybe since dad had suggested journalism, I can go down that path of writing because I loved writing. I never got to do that. I mean, I do have a website that I started blogging a few years ago. I haven't even blogged in over 12 months. So it was, it's, it's, uh, writing was always my escape. Whenever I felt stressed, I could write. Whenever I felt um, happy, I could write. So that's how I expressed myself. Um, so then I um, decided maybe medical field is a good thing because then at least I'm still helping people in other ways. Mm -hmm. um, so I then, um, when I finished high school, I took a, well, what here in Australia would call a gap year. I didn't want to rush straight into uni because I was still trying to figure out what I wanted to do. You and had progressive that, parents. Just hold up for a minute there. You had progressive parents. You were allowed a gap year? No. So I, I was lucky because my, um, my mom came to Australia. So uh -huh. here's a funny thing. My mom was, my parents, Shirugui, small town. Yeah. My parents were feared in Shirugui. Uh -huh. Like yeah. my dad used to be the headmaster at one of the schools in Shirugui. So every kid had gone through that school, right? Mm -hmm. And my mom was the head of maternity. So every parent who had a baby had gone through that birthing hospital. So everyone, so, and then my mom was like, uh, you know, 
uh, youth advisor, Tete, it's a church. Mm -hmm. So then I was always, oh, the youth advisor's daughter. So I couldn't date locally because I was terrified of my mom and my dad finding out. You know how it is? We never dated in public because our parents couldn't find oh, out. Oh, yes, you never dated, but miraculously you needed to be married at the exactly. you know, at the ripe old age of 25, <laughs> Like, but never having dated. You're not allowed to date. So um, my mom came to Australia. So my mom's a registered nurse as well. So she got a job in Australia and... Mm -hmm. She came here in 2005. So by the time she got here, I think it was more the whole, oh, wow, it's a different world here. So maybe I need to start raising my children differently. So when mom came, she, I was like, oh, I don't feel like I want to go to uni. Yet. And my dad was already in Botswana. So my parents were divorced by then. Mm -hmm. So my dad was like, oh, whatever you want, you know, talk to your mom. I really don't care. So I was like, oh, I'll stay at home. So I actually went and got a a small gig as a secretary, I hardly did anything. I don't even know what I was doing. Like, I swear to God, I would rock okay. up at work. <laughs> Rocked up at work. And it's because my dad got me that job. He's like, well, if you're not going to go to work at to school, at least do something. So mm -hmm. he got me a job with one of his friends. So I'll just rock up at work and I'll be sitting at a desk doing nothing, just answering phone calls. Um, And then I decided, oh, well, maybe I should do nursing. And I think the biggest deciding factor for me was if my mom could get a job anywhere in the world as a nurse, which meant I could go anywhere in the world being a nurse. So I thought, well, why not get into nursing? So I actually enrolled into nursing school at Guero Hospital. So um, I started doing my nursing there. Um, and then just as I was about six months in, my visa to come to Australia came through. And mm -hmm. then I came to Australia, but then got here. And then I had to go through the process of applying, which took forever to get in. Like, you know, you know how the red tape in Australia is just, oh, my God, it's, everything is just so strict here. And they had to look at my education. And it was like, oh, you know, did you like and I'm sitting there going, Zimbabwe was once in, in the Commonwealth. Back then it was still in the Commonwealth. So my education, I was um, I was British educated. You know what I mean? And Cambridge. Was, exactly. And it was still, oh, no, did you go to an English-speaking school? I'm going, which part of, I went to an English-speaking school, did you not understand? Look at my grades, everything. Like, I passed, and I did equivalent to year 12, so I could go to uni. Eventually, I did, and I enrolled into the University of Southern Queensland, actually, um, which is where I ended up doing my nursing. Best decision I ever made, because with nursing, like, it's so diverse. You can work in anything, really. So, um I guess I had so many things. I think like I, I still encourage my children. You know how you ask your kids, what do you want to be when you grow up? My mom reminded me that when I was about six, I said I wanted to be a nanny because mm -hmm. I loved how the nannies looked after us and did everything. And mom was like, why? And she goes, and apparently I said, because I would look after everyone around me. So when I think back, even though I didn't quite understand what I wanted to do, I always wanted to look after people around me. And mm -hmm. How, how else could you do it but than being like you know in the medical field or yeah. in a where you can actually look after people whether it's mentally or physically I'm mm -hmm. still looking after people you're still looking after people so tell us a bit about your early years in Australia what was that like for you was there because obviously you've come from Zimbabwe but your mum is here and we all come to uh, overseas via different pathways and you had parental support which for a lot of young people coming from Zimbabwe is not a reality um, especially for a certain generation it just you know you came out here and you figured things out so what were your early years like in Australia and what was your first kind of impression of being 
So just before I came, I remember my mom going, all right, you kids got to get your stuff. You got to get yourselves together because there's no maze. And I said, what are you talking about? Oh, yes. That's a shock. That's a culture shock. <laughs> For me, that was a big shock. I'm going, you're telling me I'm going to be doing all the cooking, the cleaning, everything? She goes, yep. I remember telling my mom I didn't want to come to Australia. Yes, I did not want to come to this country because I'm going, there's no way I'm doing all that stuff. Yeah, that's been a deal breaker for me for many years. I've thought of going back home, like, really? <laughs> to this date, I still think of ways to have somebody do things for me, right? Because I'm like, this is not how I grew up. I grew up, I had it easy, you know? Um and well, my mom had it easy because by then I was already 19. So I, she didn't even have to clean or cook. I still had to do that because yeah. that's all she's ever known, right? Um, and then I came. So I live in this very small town, regional town called Maryborough here in Queensland. Mm-hmm. And in Maryborough, I swear to God, I think if we were not the second, we were the only black family in town. So my brothers had to go to school where they were the only black kids at school and everyone wanted to touch their hair and everyone wanted to, you know, kids were checking them out and figuring like, and, you know, you'd get, and some of the people were actually not exposed to people of color. They've only ever seen them on TV. So seeing them in person, you'd have these young kids staring and like, and we all know staring is rude, right? And you'd be feeling uncomfortable. And I remember um, being on campus and I was the only black person on campus. I used to call myself a celebrity. I'll come home, I'll be like, mom, I'm a celebrity at school. Nobody, like I'm the only person. Like, how can you forget the only black person on campus? Like, honestly. I love your positive attitude about being in a, because like in Zimbabwe growing up, I, you know, the schools I went to, I was one of like five or 10, particularly in junior school, because, you know, I went to white only school straight after independence and there weren't a lot of us in those schools. Um, When I got to high school, the ratio got a bit better, but we were still in the, in the minority, particularly in the private school space, because that went from, you know, color segregation to money, which was still another form of segregation because who's, who basically still had the the money, you know? So I love that positive spin that you, um, that you put on, uh, you know, I'm a celebrity. I I love that. And if we could empower our kids to look at, uh, you know, um, you know, my company's logo is always difference is always your advantage. You know, it yes. always is the advantage. So I really your superpower being. I love that your superpower. So I actually love that. And you know, it's funny because because I didn't do my primary in high school here in Australia. Um, in in Maryborough, I'm well known as oh your Edmund sister or your Alan and Alan's sister. It's like mm-hmm. and because people go oh, oh I went to school with these guys and it's like and because you know like you've got to be politically correct. You can't like I mean we can we, we talk about ourselves as black, but then people will be like oh with these kids they were like coloured and I'll be like oh you're talking about the twins and people go oh yeah I'm like oh they they they're my brothers oh you're the sister so people always. <laughs> You know how in Zimbabwe mothers became identified by their children because yep. you know it's am I a mother of the so and so mother of so and so so your identity is now tied to your brothers. It's My like- brothers, I'm actually identified as the sister of these boys and I'm like oh yeah I'll, I'm gonna roll with that so I literally walk around going yep they're my brothers yeah I'm such and such a sister and you know even when people tell me what school they go to I'm like they went to or 
uh, their children. I'm like, oh, yeah, my brothers went to that school. And it's like, oh, yeah, we've seen them, like, you know. Um, so two of my brothers are in the uh, Australian defence. So uh, the school that they went to every time there's Anzac Day, they always put up photos of the children that went to that school that are in the Australian defence. So, like, people, some of the kids, they come, they're like, your brothers are still coming up on, like, you know, they still put them up at school. I'm like... Well, they are serving their country. They're doing something. And, you know, the school is proud that they've, you know, they've bred these children that have grown up to go and serve the country. And I'm still associated with them, you know, so by association. And And they're different, you know. So tell us a bit about your career. How did you start off in nursing here? What, what What were you doing initially? So when I went finished my uni, I was lucky enough back then when you were applying for your grad program, you could mm-hmm. you could apply to like six to eight different hospitals and just hope that, you know, Russian roulette, one hospital will pick you. And mm-hmm. I was one of those few people who got picked by two hospitals um, after um, I think I was interviewed by uh, Rockhampton Hospital and Gold Coast Hospital. And mm-hmm. then I got the jobs and it was a matter of, oh, which is going to be better for me. And obviously we all know everyone wants to go to the Gold Coast, right? So I ended up going to the Gold Coast <laughs> um, where I started off working in rehab, um, I did neuro uh, neurosurgical. It was back then. It was a combined vascular vascular and neurosurgical, and I loved it. I um, liked the neuro side of things, the way the brain worked. And as weird as it sounds, I know I was working with a lot of people with traumatic injuries, whether it was the brain or spinal injuries, and how, like nursing them and seeing their progression was for me. It was very rewarding. But, you know, I, there were still a lot of those um, sad stories, like people who would have, um, like, brain tumors. Like, there's one that I will never, ever forget. Uh, it's it, they normally shortened as GBM. It's a glioblastoma. And it's recu- re- recurring. So even if they re- uh, resect it, it will still come back. And there would be those patients that would come back and it's like, oh, she was here a few months ago. She was here last year. You know, it's some of those things were a little bit heartbreaking but they would come in and you would see their progress and you would be there with the family and everything that was um one of my favorite wards um but then I fell pregnant with my oldest and uh because I had really t- uh, difficult pregnancies I would be given what they would call um light duties and light duties was me working in pediatrics oh my god I'd go home bawling my eyes out every single day because you know hormonal and then I'll be crying what if my child has this disease and what if this happens to my child and I can never be a pediatric nurse I take my head off to anybody who works in pediatrics because it is the most heartbreaking and especially as a parent because I'm thinking that could be my child um and so um, I did, I worked in different departments. The only department I never really worked was um, ICU because you need specialization in ICU. But mm-hmm. I did oncology, renal, um, pediatrics, medical, surgical, you know, it was all always interesting. I even did outpatients at times. Mm-hmm. But I loved it. I met so many beautiful nurses. Some of them, I'm still friends with them even after I left. Mm-hmm. Um, I loved, while I was in there, I actually loved clinical facilitation. So I used to do preceptorship with the students as well. Mm-hmm. And I loved teaching young people how, like, you know, like, this is how you should look after people when they're in hospital. For me, it was my passion to teach the, the future generation of how to be better nurses and better practitioners. Um, but then obviously, um, not obviously, but I um, I went through... Uh, my relationship wasn't so good. So I am a domestic violence survivor. I left uh, when my children were four and two. 
and mm -hmm. I went back home. Um, <clears throat> I, it was a very difficult time for me and my children. And but like what you were saying before, not everyone has the opportunity to come with their parents. I was lucky that I had my mum and not a lot of people, a lot of immigrants are in DV situations, but they feel they can't get out because they've got no support or they do not know how to get support. And they're like, oh, it's just me. I don't have a mom or a dad or a sister or a brother. Mm -hmm. So I'm just going to stick around because that man that they're with makes them believe that they're nothing without them and they've got no other help outside. Luckily, yeah, and I think as a community, we don't talk enough about we, DV and we haven't because I used to work in the DV space mm. from a policy from a policy perspective. And before I started working in DV, none of my friends knew what I did. Like I used yeah. to work on homelessness policy. They knew I worked for the government and I did something, yeah. <laughs> you know, um, and I did something with policy, with legislation. But the, nobody was even vaguely interested in my job. When yes. I switched to working on DV policy um, and working um, back then, it was the not now, not ever um, strategy that Dame Quinton Bryce, um, the Dame Quinton Bryce report and implementing that across Queensland. Um, yes. it, it, it People all of a sudden, like, although they still didn't understand what I did, all of a sudden I had a lot of conversations and there's a lot of shame around yes domestic and family violence, we don't talk about it. There's a yes. lot of misunderstanding around what DV actually looks like because it's not yes. just physical. It's not There's just not physical, exactly. A whole lot of it. Yeah, you know? exactly. And I remember the day I called my nurse unit manager telling her what my children had told me was happening to them when I wasn't at home. I didn't, like I told her everything that had happened. And she said, Agnes, that's a form of domestic violence. And my words to her were, it doesn't happen to people like me because I was that strong woman. But I didn't realize it had been slowly happening. It wasn't just physical. It was mental. It was it was economical. It was psychological. It was everything. And so anyway, fast forward, I left. I went back home to Maryborough again. And I went and lived home with my mom. I was lucky. Mom was like, come home. You know, we've got you. And my brothers, by then, they were all working. So they all chipped in, helped me. Because I left with nothing but the clothes on our backs with me and my children. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we know how to do that <laughs> we're like good gotta go <laughs> yes um and then I started looking at like you know and sometimes we all have a way of trying to cope I doubted myself second guessed myself turned to the bottle for a little while and mm -hmm. then my mom was like you gotta get off your ass and start doing something because you still have these kids to look after so I went back in the hospital system and started working at two hospitals and in one of them I was actually a clinical nurse there and I loved it educating people I was doing clinical education and clinical facilitation for students as well um but it wasn't working because then I was a single mom even though I was with my mother she's a nurse she's doing shift work and I was a single mom doing shift work it wasn't working like there's only so much before and after school care but what if I'm doing night shift and mom's doing night shift so who's going to have the kids um and then it went back to like so even though I've always had a passion for looking after people I also had always had a passion for fashion I love beauty and fashion and those who know me know I go all out I like mm -hmm. go all out oh so, yeah we're in that boat we're in team like things <laughs> yes yes so um I started looking into uh cosmetic injectables and I was like okay I I had been hearing about it when I was on the Gold Coast and I was like oh probably it's not for me and also I didn't get the support from my then partner so when I started looking into it I realized okay I needed to get myself in it learn a little bit more. So I embarked on that journey, did my training as a cosmetic nurse, and I started working for one of the biggest chain clinics in Australia. 
it was um good because I could pick my hours, I could pick my days. And so, uh, which meant like all I had to do was talk to the clinic one and say, single mom, I need to be able to drop my kids off at school and be able to come back home and pick up my kids from school. And she was like, yep, we can work around that. And that's how I started. Mm -hmm. So I've been in the cosmetic industry for five years now. Best decision I've ever made. I am home a lot more, uh, even though it might come across as if I'm not available. My children are a little bit older. They actually love it because they're like, mom, what restaurant are you going to be going to today? Mm -hmm. You know, what hotel are we going to go? Sometimes I take them with me because, you know, with my, my work, I get to travel a lot. Mm -hmm. I started training people as well. So which is amazing um, because training, I didn't realize that I actually had a passion for training. But in everything I was doing, when I've looked back, I'm like clinical education, clinical facilitation, preceptorship. I've actually been had that passion for training. So now I'm implementing it even in the cosmetic industry. So I train uh, people for other companies like I'm a contracted trainer for different companies now which yep. is amazing um, and one of my biggest things now being an injector is there's not people a lot of people of color that do injectables so I'm pushing for education to those who are in the industry Caucasians and Asian injectors and plastic surgeons to say we need to teach more about people of color because the you know, gen millennials and Gen Zs, the you know, and we are raising Gen Alphas. They're going to be coming in and wanting to learn about their skin. My seven-year-old daughter is talking about skincare, so she's already exposed to that because of social media. So mm -hmm. I'm going. We need to educate. Our, we need to be educated on how. If I walked in in a room and you, I say to you, I need something done. You need to be able to look at me and go, this is how I'm going to treat her, but still maintain that beautiful African feature without, you know, um, making her look more Caucasian or something like that. Because, and I think, and also trying to educate Africans that you are beautiful the way you are. Because I had somebody say to me, oh, can you do my nose? I was like, what, you want a white nose? She's like, oh, I feel like it needs to be straight. I'm like, your nose is beautiful the way it is. Africans, we're given button noses. That's what defines us. So why would you want to go and have a straight pointy nose? Like mm -hmm. turn it more Caucasian when you're beautiful the way you are. It's like, yeah, oh, yeah. Actually, I never thought of it that way. I'm like, yeah, we can still maintain our beautiful features, mm -hmm. but just address certain areas that, you know, we're starting to show aging. We, we age. Like we all talk about, oh, yeah, black don't crack. Girls, guys, black cracks. It does crack. It does. It's like I, I love the fact that people, we're proud of us going, yeah, we, I think the whole black don't crack is, we don't age as fast as Caucasians do. Yeah, but, but we do age. Aging, it's, mm -hmm. it, when it comes, it's instant. You look in the mirror one day and you're like, holy cow, what happened there? Yeah, yeah. I remember one day looking at myself thinking, whoa, wait, wait, whoa, 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 exactly. where's that going? <laughs> where are we going with that? <laughs> but what we need to understand is we can slow down that aging by small tweaks here and there. Botulinum toxin to reduce frowns and lines, you know, dermal fillers for volume restoration. You know, those dark circles, you're constantly going, I look tired and hollowing mm -hmm. down the eyes. There's ways to to to, to manage that. Yeah. Take away that tired look, you know. There's certain ways where we start looking like, oh, I look sad down here. We can support that. I'm always like, you know, people going, oh, why do you always have a resting bitch face? It's because we're aging. So we can actually try and reverse that and rejuvenate our faces without making us look any different but maintaining that youthfulness is what I try and educate people and I think there's a huge misunderstanding certainly I had that before you know I met you and um you know can 
educate people about injectables because I think we have this celebrity view and we also have this social media sensationalized views of these, you know, oversized lips. You have, you know, stuff taken out of your butt and filled it. Like people have so many misconceptions um, and lack of real understanding. Can you just take us through a 101? Like what are injectables and how does that help? I mean, you've explained how that helps in terms of, you know, filler frown, but just take us out of that, you know, celebrity social media world into what reality actually is. Yeah. So reality is, I say to people, when you see me, do you think I get injectables? People are like, oh, you don't need it. I do. So I, I get like your botulinum toxin, you, your different treatments, you get your muscle relaxants, right? Mm -hmm. away, those lines, you know, when you put on your makeup, you're like, oh my God, look at these lines on my forehead. It's like, they're just permanently there after I put on my makeup, it's like etching there. That's what we're trying to soften those muscles so that you don't have that happening all the time and then they become permanent. So there's different types of injectables. You've got your muscle relaxants, you've got your fillers, you've got threads, You've got you've got um, platelet-rich plasma, which also helps with skin uh, rejuvenation. It's when we, that's when we start talking about regenerative medicine as well. So mm -hmm. you also have skin boosters. We're talking about Africans. We're prone to having dry skin. So yes. you get skin boosters. They help with hydration. So it's not always about looking like um, you know whatever you see on TV. We're not. We already have, we are genetically blessed with beautiful, luscious lips that Caucasians are trying to get, right? Oh, but yeah. it doesn't mean that you can't have hydration in those lips because our lips also lose volume. But we're not saying you should have lips like that face that we keep seeing popping up on social media that look like balloons on, on their faces. No, it's just maintaining the way you look without going overboard. What people don't realize is those people that we're seeing on social media, the things that we're seeing, some of it is, is to do with mental health issues. So they're not happy with themselves. So they keep going back and back and back. But that's where you need a practitioner who's, who has the strength to say no to you. You come in, Chris, and you say to me, oh, I want to have this, and I'm looking at you going, but you don't need it. I can say to you, Chris, no, I don't need to do your lips. You've got beautiful, luscious lips. Um, how about we just work on your skin today? So there's different ways you can work on different on, on the person's face without making them look ridiculous. So injectables are mainly focused on the face, sometimes mm -hmm. in the decolletage, because mm -hmm. that's the areas we tend to see more aging in women and men. So uh botulinum toxin demo fillers threads um skin boosters biostimulators bioremodelers platelet rich plasma those are the kind of treatments that people tend to get there's more treatments that are coming out in the market but in australia which australia is very um very not strict but um they they look at things in a different way. They don't just rush into, yes, let's just do everything. You know, some of the things we're seeing is happening in America and the UK and whatever. Some people go overboard, but Australia is, they try and do it in such a way that is controlled. Like, okay, it has to be proven to work. And so that people don't look ridiculous. Like we've, okay. we've just, we just recently had new regulations that came out from the 1st of July, where we're now having to do mental health screening for our patients as well. So yeah. To make sure that people don't have mental health issues and they don't want to come back. Yeah. But 
some of some of us we have been doing that when you come in and i go well why do you want to have that and i can tell okay there's a little bit of mental health happening there i can, i should be able to turn you away but unfortunately there's other practitioners that haven't been doing that in the past that's why we now have these regulations that we have to do the screening we have to make sure that people are doing it for the right reasons and it's not just because i want more 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 so <laughs> There's nothing wrong in getting injectables, even as people of color. People mm -hmm. of color do need it. There's different skin treatments. Like, you know, we look at ourselves and we see pigmentation. Unfortunately, being dark skinned as well, you have to be very careful where you go and get treatment for things like pigment because we are very prone to hyperpigmentation. So okay. if you go and get treatment and you don't get it done by the right person who understands your skin color and skin tone and texture, you might end up with worse pigment. So always speak to your practitioner well, have a good consultation and, you know, like things like skin tags. Someone was talking to me the other day that they're like, oh, they went to see a doctor and they were talking about their skin tags and they didn't know what to do. So I'm talking to, like, I've actually been reaching out to doctors in South Africa and stuff because they're on the ground working with people of color there. And I'm going, teach me because I want to be able to learn more so I can teach people so we can learn more about our skin. Because before, five years ago, I wasn't in this in this industry. So I don't know more besides me just jumping in the shower, washing my face and everything. And not every skincare range is good for our skin as well. We're trying all different types of things. But one of the biggest thing I'm now seeing is you're seeing sisters of color bleaching. Why the hell are we bleaching? You yeah. look beautiful the way you are. That African beauty doesn't need to go away. And, you know, that's, sis, that's a whole nother episode yeah. conversation and the whole colorism and, uh, I mean, you know, the, the, the toxic chemicals that are in a lot of those um creams that are sold you know in in roadside they're not even sold by clinicians they sold yeah. you can get them in a grocery store yeah yeah that's that's a whole nother thing now back to um the cosmetic industry and people of color so the industry itself um obviously you know it's very limited with people of color you're the first nurse of color that i know um, yep. that is um, that is in that space. So within the industry itself, I know you're doing a lot of advocacy work and you're you're talking to people, but um, obviously there is a difference in our skin, right? And yep. there's a difference in our in the way that the treatments and as you've explained, the skincare and all of that with the industry itself and the diversity, equity and inclusion space, which you're well aware of how passionate I am. I'm building my, you know, my yep. business around it. Yeah. Um, what what more can be done to educate the industry? Obviously, there's the advocacy component, but from a even from a curricular sort of perspective, what is built into that space that actually can educate a qualified person to be out there and be able to treat my skin the way my skin needs to be treated, as opposed to a Caucasian, as opposed to an Asian? Is that changing? It is. I find um, like in the last 12 months, um, a lot of companies are now trying, they are now bringing in diversity and inclusivity. So inclusive, oh, I can never say that word. Inclusivity. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so they are now trying to teach people that we, how do we uh, um, tackle a person of color or person Asian or Caucasian or, you know, Hispanic or whatever. So it's something that has been, you know, is starting to get implemented and have people being taught about it the only thing is i find a lot of people of color we are still anti-injectables so it makes it difficult to um 
to be able to have to do case studies or anything like that because up until 10 years ago Caucasians were the same it was oh no I, I don't do that it's not something I want to do but but now people are starting to do it so it's now trying to get Africans to catch up to the whole oh yeah I can actually do that and it's okay mm -hmm. or people of color anyways in America they're doing it it's just I think people in the, from the African continent are the mm -hmm. ones that are still behind, you know? I think it's ignorance, you know? And, and that's what I was going to say. It's all about ignorance. So it's, I think us as, an, um, as people of color, we need to be educated that yeah. it's okay to have treatments. Having treatments is not changing you. It doesn't make you any different. You're not going to look like something out of a crazy TV show. It's okay. The same way Caucasians have been educating themselves, we need to start saying, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay. And we need those people that are happy to go, you know what, I'll happily try it. Have people that like, I love the fact that you were happy to, you know, to be a model. You go. I knew nothing. Exactly. And happy to have your photos on social, mm -hmm. social media because that's how we start educating people. Unfortunately, the generation of our mothers, they would never have that because they're like, no, people can't see me having that. So it's our generations and the younger generations that it's our it's our time to educate people. It's our time to say, yep, I'll put my hand up. OK, it's OK. Yes, there's risks associated with it, but the risks are small. So how about we educate people and people see that, OK, it's actually OK to have these treatments. It's all about education we need to continue educating people and my passion is to educate people of color that it's okay to have yeah. because like you know it, we're just maintaining our beauty we're not looking any crazier than the way we look right now yeah and uh we're going to collaborate later this year and put on uh, an education event because i think one of the 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 the, the immense privilege that I have with the work that I do is that I come across people like you and so many people who are so dynamic, who are doing so many things. And, you know, really it's groundbreaking what you, this, um, the things you're working on in the cosmetic industry, because um, it's new, like, yes. it, and there's not a lot of people who look like us. So when you're trailblazing um, in that space and, and look, there'll always be stigma. Everybody has an opinion about everything, you know, blah, blah, blah. Good luck with that. But but it's it's really about sitting in that space of being educated before you put your judgment on yes. something and yes. that's that's a lot of what i've learned working in the diversity equity and inclusion space you know coming from zimbabwe um, coming from a very small town, I also come from a small town, Chegutu, which is not on, you know, you have to really look to find yep. it on the map. <laughs> and if you're going to Bulaway, you blink, you'll miss it. You miss so, it, yep. It's, it's, so having grown up in a very sheltered environment, you know, I went to the local school there. I went to, uh, you know, Mandera. And so I grew up very sheltered. And, you know, this work has allowed me to really expand my view of the world. And really some of the things that even from a Christian perspective, you know, it's, um, you know, it's like what you're talking about could be deemed to be in, you know, the vanity department and all of this and all of that. And you talked about law, like what you said about the law, I, I never thought that that could be, I'd always thought of law in the positive way of serving God, like you could get, you know, I would be defending people, but you know, there's the prosecution side, there's, there's all sorts of different, different things, you could end up defending criminals, but everybody deserves a good defense. And, but you know, some of these innate prejudice that we grow up with, really do frame our world. And that's all about unconscious bias. And that's yeah. how we 
we approach and move in the world. You know, Agnes, I could talk to you for hours and I, know. You know, and I, I know. do. <laughs> and I learned so much from you. Now, tell us the name of your company, where you're located. So if people want to get educated and find out and even just want to come in for a consult, yes. tell us where they can find you. Um, so my name of my company is Zebra Aesthetics. Um, you can find me on social media, Facebook. I also have a website. I'm based in Maryborough, but I'm actually looking into a location in Brisbane at the moment because I am wanting to try and educate and target people of colour because in Queensland, Brisbane has got the largest um, people of colour community. So I'm hoping that I can find a space sooner before the end of the year so I can actually start educating and treating people of colour in this beautiful city of Brisbane. So it's Zebra Aesthetics, um, either on Facebook, Instagram, I'm terrible with TikTok and terrible with Twitter. I do have accounts there, um, but you can also look up my website. It's uh, www.zebraesthetics.com.au. Um, yeah, and I also have my number on any of those platforms. So if anyone always has a question, feel free to ring me. I'm happy to have a chat with someone and even do like a video call where I can, you know, do a consultation. I'm happy to do consultations for anyone who wants to know more and learn more as well. Excellent. So thank you so much for being on Sisters in Colour. And thank you so much for educating us about this, uh, this amazing industry that, you know, few of us know anything about. Uh, and few of us dare to find anything uh, out about because we have a lot of preconceived ideas, which you have spent quite some time debunking. So, you know, love that. Love, uh, you know, educating, love learning. Uh, so thank you so much, Agnes, for being uh, for being here and for waking up early to record uh, this podcast with me. So I really, really appreciate that. Thank you very um, much, so to all our listeners, I'd like to thank our sponsors of our, our podcast, Utano Global. Our intention is to bring you amazing women on this platform who really inspire you to think of things a little bit differently. So until next time, we'd like to thank our guest today, Agnes, for being with us, um, for being with us today. Until next time, from me, your host, Christine Mudamanu, I'll see you then. Thank you.